You're listening to episode 117 of Reframe Your Life. Today, Sandy and I are joined by Krista Couture. Krista is an award-winning performing and recording artist, nonfiction writer, and broadcaster. She's brought out five albums with the most recent Safe Harbor, an EP of six piano-focused songs dropping during the COVID lockdown. You have my sympathies. She is probably Indigenous, mixed Cree and Scandinavian. I want to hear more about that. Queer, disabled, and a mom. Krista was prairie raised, spent 17 years in Vancouver, and now calls Toronto home. We're so glad to have you here in the East. And this is where she wrote the songs for Safe Harbor, including the one that reaches deep into my own heart every time, called Water to Sail. Krista has become known through her tremendous body of work in media, writing, music, and yes, as an expert in loss. Singing, speaking, and writing about her confrontations with trauma and grief, which form the spine of her wonderful memoir launching tomorrow as this broadcasts called How to Lose Everything. Krista walks readers through it with all frank descriptions, vulnerable scenes, and incredibly revealing prose. And we're thrilled and honored to speak to Krista Couture today and say congratulations on the launch of her book on September 19th. Sandy, can you take us into the book so we can get right to it with Krista, please? I would be happy to. When Krista talks about her personal story, she says she has a grief bio, a life speckled unenviably with personal crisis. From the amputation of her leg as a cure for bone cancer at a young age to her first son Emmett's single day of life, the heart transplant and subsequent death of her second son Ford, the divorce born of grief, and then the thyroidectomy that threatened her career as a professional musician, How to Lose Everything delves into the heart of loss. Krista bears witness to the shift in perspective that comes with loss and how it can deepen compassion for others, expand understanding, inspire a letting go of little things, and plant a deeper feeling for what matters. At the same time, Krista's writing transmits the lightness that proceeds and eventually follows grief and models for readers the resilience that grows from connection. Krista Couture explores the emotional and psychological experiences of motherhood, partnership, and change, deftly connecting the dots of sorrow, reprieve, and hard-won hope. How to Lose Everything contains the advice Krista is often asked for, as well as the words she wishes she could have heard many years ago. It's also an offering of kinship and understanding for anyone experiencing a loss. Krista, thank you for joining us today. And we are really looking forward to exploring your memoir with you. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. We have fallen into this routine of starting every interview during this pandemic with, we're calling it the COVID question. <laughs> and it's, how are you doing? How has life been for you? What's been affected? What's, what's maybe been good and what's maybe been challenging for you? The COVID question. That's a great way of phrasing it. I feel like a lot of conversations, emails, there's like a new etiquette around what do you say first? It's usually like, right. I hope you're okay. <laughs> That's true. Yes. You know, which has a new, a new weight to it or new meaning. And I mean, we've been okay. I'm very lucky in that I've still had work during this time that I've been to at home. My partner who already worked from home still has work. And at first, you know, we used to have childcare. And so at first, of course, that went and and our, our routine changed and our world got so much smaller. But the nice part of that was 
learning to enjoy that small, small world, you know, especially with having a little one, my daughter will be three in October. And, you know, instead of going to the library and the coffee shop and the drop-in or whatever, it's walking in the neighborhood, which we did before, but it was always to get somewhere. And I think what I've really learned to appreciate in this time is like going for walks. There's there's nowhere to go. (laughs) And it's been kind of this practice of like, where we're doing the same block that we've done every day, but you know, maybe there's something we didn't notice yesterday. And like, mm. never noticed that mailbox was red. Did they always have a red mailbox? Probably, mm. but we never like walked so slowly and we were never kind of spending time in our neighborhood in, in this way that we were before. So I really enjoyed that. We're very lucky that we have a backyard and that mm-hmm. as soon as it got warm, we were able to just be outside and spend time there. Um, I know not everyone has access to outdoor spaces easily. So we've been blessed with that and really just counting our blessings. Um, I think, you know, it's stressful. It's scary. It's weird. We definitely felt a lot of cabin fever at times, but ultimately considering we're fine, we have a home, we have our health, our immediate family is healthy. And that's like a lot more than, and a lot of people have right now. It's such a difficult time. And so I'm okay. <laughs> I think as soon as I kind of, as soon as I look around, I mean, it's interesting. And it, it, I had no idea, of course, that I would be releasing one, an EP about safety and feeling safe and a book about loss in this year, you know, right. trademark 2020. Like this is a year where everyone is touched by loss. Absolutely everyone. And everyone is all the time anyways, but this is a new, this is something new and it's big in a way that most of us haven't experienced. So I feel like I'm also kind of very aware that I've put these pieces of art into the world from a place of having perspective and distance on loss. And I'm actually in a position right now in my life where things are okay. And I'm looking right. around me and I'm like, wow, now lots of other people aren't okay. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which squarely lands your book in the space of what we need to hear, right? It's, mm. uh, it's, it found its inspiration and landed at exactly the right time. I love that sort of the karmic modality that books seem to have and they move in the world in such a mysterious way, but mm-hmm. not just your, you know, I was reading an interview that you did where you said you felt safe in your life for the first time in a long time. And I think you bring, um, you bring a poetic sort of view on safety through the book. And maybe that's the point of entry about you give us glimpses of your life when you weren't safe but you didn't always know that you weren't safe. Your perception of loss is you've normalized it almost because it's become sadly a lifestyle for you. So can you take us back to a time in your life when, and I suppose it leads up to the time that you spent with your therapist talking about the loss of your leg, but the most impactful thing for me when you wrote about your early life was that losing your leg saved your life. So you were able to put a spin on it, whether that was family influence or that speaks to your personality, but you've been able to do better than be resilient and do better than endure. You've literally woven this into the fabric of your life. So can you take us back to whether we're seeing a piece of you in that part of your childhood or was that family? What gave you that ability? It's interesting because when you were just talking about like, when you're in it, you don't always know kind of the enormity of the loss. Certainly as a kid, I didn't have a perspective of losing my leg. I didn't, you know, know what that could mean for my adult life. I didn't know what I was potentially losing down the road, which in some ways I I maybe got through it just out of, I want to say ignorance only because of my age, only because I was a kid. And, um, you know, I think 
if you lose a leg or you acquire a disability as an adult, you have a strong sense of what you're losing or you are actively losing something in your life that is going to have to change. But I think because I was so young, it just, it just pointed me in a new direction. And I didn't have enough foresight to know that, you know, there was a, now a path that I would never go down or that I already started on. I just wasn't there yet. And I think, and when it comes to seeing the loss of my leg as a cure, it was easy because I, by the time I lost my leg, I'd already been in the hospital and receiving treatment for cancer for a couple of years. And I'd made a lot of friends in the hospital and a lot of them weren't as lucky. Like, a, you know, it's in the book. I knew a lot of kids yes. who died in the time that I was there. And so I knew that going through this was not as big a deal. <laughs> and I think also because I knew kids who were losing their limbs as well. And yes. it was sort of normal in that space. It was once I got out into high school and out into the world where I was like, oh, most people have all their limbs. Okay. Because in the hospital, there was a lot of difference in surgeries and tubes and all kinds of things that our, our bodies were experiencing. And so there, I, I, because I got to start by it feeling normal, I think it made it easier to take that sense back out into the, you know, quote unquote, real world. And uh, to know that I was lucky and that it, it was a cure and it was framed as a cure at the time. You know, right. it, it was a treatment. It was part of my treatment plan was to amputate my leg so that um, I wouldn't have bone cancer anymore. And that was, that was the goal. And we tried other things first. We tried chemotherapy. We tried radiotherapy. They didn't work. Um, so it, it was always talked about that way as something that could help me. Which I guess is to also credit my family. Let's give them some credit. <laughs> give my mom especially <laughs> some credit. You know, I, I can't remember if it's in the book, but I woke up the day of my surgery and she put a card on the on the counter saying today is peg leg day. And it was a, a day that we yep. celebrated every year. This was the day that I became cancer free. This was the day that was the beginning of a new life. And so she also brought in that perspective, you know, that this was going to be my healthy life. This was going to mean I yes. could get out of the hospital. Yeah. So very much from her as well. Mm, that's great. I think it's so important how things are framed for us in our experience is, is really key in how, you know, it's a mindset. It's how we understand them and how we get through them. In the book, you give us so many candid glimpses of the things that people say to you and we groan with you and we giggle with you. And I think any of us, anyone who's experienced any kind of loss in their life or has um, confronted or been in a conversation with someone who has uh, dealt with a, a loss, we have that awkwardness around how we address it and all the fears and we stumble and we say things that are ridiculous and we regret them later. We hear things that are annoyingly frustrating and ignorant to us as well. So I was thinking about that. You talked about in the book, uh, people must turn to you for wisdom or people come to you for wisdom. And part of your writing this book was to help people to understand what works and what's helpful for people. So what is the advice you're most commonly asked for by people mm. when they're dealing with loss or when they're trying to be supportive of someone who's dealing with loss? I get asked, you know, what should I say? And I get that asked if it's like around a bereaved parent, if someone who knows someone who's lost a child may come to me and say, what should I say? I get asked about kids with cancer. You know, someone will say, my, my friend, my daughter's friend at school, she's got cancer. Like, can I connect you? Because what should I say? And so I get asked <laughs> kind of how to support exactly 
on these different experiences that I have, but mostly it's around kids with cancer or, or losing a child. And sometimes I actually feel, especially around losing a child, I, I don't know what to say, even though two of my children have died. I feel like because of that, it's almost harder for me to know what to say because it's just, it depends on the person, depends on who they are, who their child is. And so other than, you know, I'm sorry, um, yes, I usually yeah. kind of leave it at that. I, you know, say, keep it simple, do something helpful, <laughs> make food, clean the house, you know, but, but try and follow their lead. And then for kids, you know, I, I usually try and give a mix. I feel like a lot of times parents or friends want me to tell kids with cancer, like, it's going to be okay. Everything's okay. And I try to right. like, be like, actually, it's really hard sometimes. And yes, this really sucks. And you're going to be okay. You know, I try to kind of balance uh, a mix because I think sometimes that sort of emphasis on, on um, triumphing is, is sort of suffocating, can be suffocating because it doesn't really just sure. allow you to grieve. It doesn't allow you to feel like crap when really that's just genuinely <laughs> how you feel, um, which is maybe true in both cases. Maybe that's what I try to support even with around grief and, and loss and losing a person it's like mm -hmm. it's hard it's really hard and the rest of us just have to be okay with it being hard right um I mean, you know no maybe that there's no fix right there's no fix and that's probably some of the advice that comes through in the book is like yes. you need to witness you need to show up and you need to be okay with it not getting better yeah. you yeah. showed us the the difference in processing pain as well by showing us you know how your husband was coping with it and how you processed um, first Emmett and then Ford and how other grief you later reflect in the book has a different flavor for you. I mean, you don't, you know that every grief is different, even though we have one label for it as grief. But the idea of processing information was powerful for me in the book because everyone takes their own time. So whether or not you have the wisdom or the advice or the kind words to say, there's a very good chance that you don't know how someone is managing at the time even if it's been, you know, the, the one month we say is a cornerstone or the three months we say is a milestone in grief. And I've had to work on that um, for the last decade myself of how long it takes to really ingest and assimilate the painful information. And some people just don't want too much of it at one time. So I love that you say, I'm sorry, is the opener because that's the opener for them to give you some kind of indication of how they're doing. And whether that's a child or an adult. Yeah. 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 And one thing I've done, you know, I tend to, if I know someone's had, if I know someone's having a hard time, half the time we don't know someone's struggling, but if we know something has happened, I will ask, how are you coping? I've stopped asking, how are you? Because yes. it's sort of like, obviously you're not okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But yes. maybe today that means you're like, you know, you're going out shopping and you're giggling and you've done your hair, whatever. But like, so it's like, how are you coping? And yeah. I feel like that actually allows us to be like, well, this is what I'm doing right now. And it just yeah. assumes that things are messy or things are unknown. And, but instead it's like, well, today I'm coping by like, I'm really heavy. I can't get out of bed. Okay. Or like today I'm coping by, I'm just going to go cook and do this for five hours. And I've got a big long to-do list and that I'm just going to get it done. You know, it's like, it sort of makes things more immediate while acknowledging that all this other stuff was going on because how are you is also can be a tough question. Oh, right. Know? And coping re is a recognition that there is coping, you know, that there's, it's, it's not a, how are you can sound like you're good or you're not good. Whereas coping is a process to me, like it's an ongoing 
kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 I had a friend who, when she um, tragically lost her husband young, she said that um, she was always wary of the head tilters. She said, she called them the head tilters. So she mm. said it would be the people who went, like, as soon as they saw her, they would tilt their head and she would know, oh no, this yeah. is going to be, uh, pull something out of me I don't have, you know? So yeah. she was, I was always trying never to tilt my head when I'm talking to someone who's going through a loss because it feels like an automatic body language thing that we do. So it's really anyway. true. That's also a really good observation, a really good point. I know the head tilt. And yeah, and I know people are often they're doing their best, but also it's sometimes coming from their place of discomfort or their yes. desire for something. And and of course I do the same. I do the same when I know someone is struggling. Of course I want them to feel better. I don't yes. want them to hurt. So even though I have all these experiences, I will still be like, Are you okay? You're okay, right? It's gonna be okay. So even I go there. Like it's it's Aww. it's cultural, it's it's human. Like we 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 want people to be okay. But I we think do. it's so much more so much more human and so much more encompassing and so much more complete when we can say, Oh, right. It's not okay. Yeah. I get it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The, the open window through which mm -hmm. people have a chance to plant their, the seeds of their own pain. Mm -hmm. And, totally. you know, I had a question around that open window idea and I'm just going to jump to it. And it was around um, some of the words that you used in your your memoir I loved are the phrases you use one curious with kindness which I thought was you talked about it in the context of the partner you were looking for the relationship you were looking for that you were searching you said I'm searching was searching not for someone who was fluent with a disability necessarily but one who could be curious with kindness and I was I was really struck with and have sat with that phrase curious with kindness and I was thinking about your story and your floral leg and your tattoos and how those are invitations to curiosity. They're, they're a way of um, state, a statement, a visual statement um, that you make about things. And I, I was um, wondering how people respond. And if you find people respond to those invitations um, for curiosity or if they if, or if they don't, because I find that people tend to shy away from those kinds of conversations and I'm hoping that they are opening things up. Yeah. I mean, I've had lots of different experiences with the flower leg. It absolutely has become an invitation in a way that I, I didn't anticipate. Um, I didn't realize how much it would open up conversation. And I think for me, curiosity with kindness is because kind of the, the way the curiosity I don't like is curiosity with entitlement. Yes, yes. <laughs> even with the flower leg, even the, the flower leg is an invitation and it's a way that I've chosen to decorate and celebrate. I mean, it's my favorite accessory, you know, and, and I'm, I'm very happy for people to come up to me and ask me, how is it made? Or tell me they think it's beautiful or, you know, is it painted? And, and those kinds of questions. Um, and at the same time though, I think if people come up to me and, and they're, they're, doing a kind of entitlement to what happened and why did it happen and questions that can be asked about disability that are what's wrong with you. Um, I don't, that's the kind of curiosity I don't like. And that to me, that's a yes. kind of curiosity with entitlement or judgment. <clears throat> yeah. But there was something about the flowers and maybe because it's just, I, I mean, there's some things about it that sometimes I, I am frustrated with because people don't respond to crutches or wheelchairs with the same kind of, oh, awesome. But people cool. see my flower leg and they're like, wow, you're a robot. That's amazing. 
And I'm like, it is amazing, but it was amazing before I decorated it too. Um, so there's kind of some, it's also, it's pulled out people's kindness and their, their appreciation. And it's also highlighted the ways that I was like, oh, before people were a little more afraid of my, my disability or of me of having one like, and now that I've decorated it, that's wonderful that it's this invitation. And also why was there this shift? Why don't, why are we approaching disability as something that, you know, might be you know, hush, hush, or is, you know, right. is it unattractive or whatever. Um, so that's kind of an offshoot of, of things mm-hmm. I've thought about, but people mm-hmm. generally are, 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 are lovely. And, and some people, sometimes I'll like, like, you know, I feel someone staring at me and I'll look over and catch their eye and they quickly look away. Of course. <laughs> think, oh, you know, it's okay. I'm fine. And then some people come up to me and say, I don't know if it's okay to say something, that's it. you know? That's it. So then they're kind of asking, which I, I like that too. Me too. And then, yeah. and then sometimes people just kind of like walk by saying, I love your leg. Just want to say, I love it. You know, and that's you're it. Rock, you're rocking it. Isn't that great? Yeah. I mean, again, it, the, I think the open window really captured it. And I was going to come to this later on when we spoke more about structure, but I guess what I'm getting at here are the difficult conversations. And I know that one of the pieces in my book, Loving Large, that stays with people is how my son is approached pretty rudely. A lot of the time he's seven feet tall. He's a big man. But, you know, more often than not, people approach him because he's wondrous to them because he's too, well, as a, little, as a younger man, he thought he was an anomaly and used that word self-deprecatingly. Now he's approached, and especially children are like, wow, like you are amazing. And we found ways to joke about it. But you know what? We didn't find ways to make people comfortable when they were inappropriate. And I left that discomfort in a lot of elevators and a lot of grocery store lines where, you know, they would try to take a selfie with him when he, you know, when he didn't notice. Um, And the staring is constant, but most of the time it's sweet. And I Mm -hmm. often realized that people were smiling because they kind of figured out we were mom and kid and he didn't have facial hair at the time. So it was kind of that cuteness of him being twice the size of me, but (laughs) It's what we do with that openness of letting people sort of into our space when they are appropriate, aren't appropriate. Is it our job, my son's, yours? Is it anyone's job to make the other people comfortable with asking the question? I'm not sure, but I loved your reaction of people being able to say like, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but can I just ask you? That feels right Mm -hmm. to me. And is that the way you'd encourage somebody to have a difficult conversation, especially around disability, if you don't mind speaking to that? Hmm. It's tough because I know that's also very personal. I, for the most part, absolutely appreciate that approach of like, I don't know if I can say something because it's honest. And it also is giving me a chance to say, you know what, not right now. Like, thanks, but you know, Mm -hmm. um, but I happen to like those conversations and I, you know, if I really want to avoid them, I put on pants, which is also like a privilege around my disability in that I can hide it and I can pass for two-legged if I want. And I wish that passing for two-legged wasn't an advantage, but there's spaces where I'm like, I don't want to be read as disabled because this world is ableist and people are going to be weird about it. (laughs) So, you know, but that's, but that's an advantage that I can, I can take. So I know also that it's interesting because I have, because now that I have a three-year-old, I'm on the playground a lot. And so I get a lot of questions from kids. Kids are mostly awesome. We were talking about this earlier. They get it. They, they have a couple questions. They're satisfied. They go back to playing. Um, but I, I notice, you know, I hear a lot of way that parents react. And so people will, I'll hear, you know, kids saying, oh, you know, what's, what's, what's her leg? Why is her leg like that? And some parents will say, oh, you know, I don't know. I guess like that she uses that to walk. And 
some people do this and some people do that. That love that response. Um, and, or, you know, use it as a chance to just remind those kids, like lots of bodies are different. <laughs> Everybody right. is different. But I also hear a lot of parents say, I don't know, why don't you go ask her? And part of me is like, okay, great. <laughs> but also, why is disability a difference that we're willing to approach strangers about? Because yes. if it was, you know, something like some I'm height, like why is the person really tall or why is that person really fat or why is that person's skin so dark? I don't know if parents would say, I don't know, why don't you go ask them? <laughs> like there's, right. there's things about our differences in our bodies that we seem to know we shouldn't go up and say, why are you like that? But disability is something that for some reason people are willing to say, oh, go and ask. And I actually think it's because some of the ableist beliefs that we have in this culture that people disabled with disabilities don't have autonomy, that they don't have a say, that we're objectifying them. And so it's like, well, you can just go and ask them because they're oh, there for us oh. <laughs> to look at and ask. To serve. Yeah, to serve. And so that's part of it. Again, like I don't always have that experience, but I, I know that a lot of people with disabilities are like, I'm just in the park. I'm just doing my thing. Just, right. You know, why do you feel entitled, even though you maybe are being kind and you're saying to your kid, like, oh, let's go just go have a conversation with them. And there's kind of a mix. Like it's a messy, this is a messy kind of idea yeah. and a group of ideas because I don't know that there is a totally clear mm -hmm. answer or a firm line. Um, but I think, you know, it's trying to pay attention or trying to read. And certainly when it's around kids, I will try and like catch that parent's eye. And cause if I don't feel like talking, I'll maybe try and like signal but, that, um, on, on the flip side, sometimes I hear parents go like, Oh, you know, don't look, don't stare. And then I try and kind of look over and, and, and make, and say, Oh, Hey, you saw my leg. I know it looks different, you know, because I don't want that kid to feel ashamed or right. shamed for asking, but I want them to be supported and like just getting some information, even if it's like the parent saying, you know, let's Google Terry Fox later. I don't know. Like, let's learn about limb yeah. loss. Like, I don't know if we can go ask her right now, but we could something we could learn about. So I think I try to like, I try to sort of play the, the situations in different ways. I really appreciate your reflection on mm -hmm. that because that, that rounds it out for me and puts, puts so much positive energy into it. It also segues beautifully into a question that I, um, around languaging and this discomfort. And in the book, you take a strong position on whether to say you have three children, you had two sons, how to language um, the presence or absence. And this is something in the work I do with moms of parents of rare disease. This comes up frequently about the way the question is asked, we feel we have to respond to the way the question is asked, but that doesn't always feel right, does it? And for you, I was my heart just was swollen when for you, you said, this is how it feels for me. I have three children. And then you found new phraseology. And maybe you could just give the people listening mm -hmm. a taste of that because those are those uncomfortable situations that steps in. And these are grief situations around loss for anyone. You know, mm -hmm. I, for me, it, it, the most immediate for me is my parents. Of course I had parents and that has become my reflection. But I think if we were talking about my children, I would find different language to express it. And I wonder if you're mm -hmm. comfortable sharing a little bit about that for us. Mm, yeah. And actually, if we do a reading, I was going to read the part that talks a bit about that. Oh, that's great. Oh, fair enough. Great. Um, but, but it's a question. Yeah. The, do you have children? How many children do you have? <laughs> and, um, and it's something that will depend, 
you know, of course, I think, and part of what my work was, was realizing, even if I'm going to answer that question differently to someone that I have, I don't in the moment question myself. Because for a while, if someone asked, you know, after my first son died or after my second son died, do you have kids? I kind of have a, I don't know. Yes. No. Yes. But no, but oh God, my heart, like I kind of would go into this spin of grief. And so part of my work was coming to a place where I, for myself and say, yes, yes, I now at this point have three children. And so I can feel that and be grounded in that. And then how I respond or what I say out loud might change, you know, it's going to depend on the person it's going to depend on the setting um, and all those factors that go into it. Um, But it kind of came down to learning how to just like feel, you know, feel it's true in myself and not let those other questions pull me into grief and pull me into my own kind of questions about validity and identity and but they're hard you know because they Mm -hmm. are are pieces of identity especially around parenthood who we are as parents how we see ourselves as parents that's a really big part of our lives even if we aren't parents you know we still have like a relationship to parenting you know um and and so it's it's big for most of us or a lot of us I think Mm -hmm. That's a great response. And I, I love the, mm-hmm. that way you're getting at that um, in all of these situations, it's really up to us asking questions to recognize what we're asking. Like we just, we tend to ask things so without much thought, like we just have these stereotypes or we, we think people fit yeah. in boxes and we just ask questions, you know, and that, that's a difficult question around children for so many people, for so many different reasons that we should just yes. stop asking in some ways, unless we're in some sort of relationship with people that warrants a question like that. So I appreciate your I response. definitely, I never ask if someone has kids or has other kids, if there's a way that I'm trying to work. And that, again, that's because that reflects my experience. I'm sure I ask all kinds of insensitive questions, <laughs> you know, at this point in my right. life, because I, I don't know yet. You do, yeah. Um, but I, the, the wording that I try to use with other people, is even I'll just say, do you have kids in your life? Because sometimes it's like, oh, just have you been around kids? It's like, do you have nieces or nephews? Do you have a stepkid? Like, because sometimes that's also like, people know about kids. They've lived with kids, but it wasn't, you know, maybe they're not the parent. So I try to like, that's my way of like, oh, do you have kids in your, in your life? right maybe maybe not yeah you know because it's a bit broader yeah yeah I appreciate the suggestion yeah yeah it's uh so thank you about that you um ask there's another question I wanted to dig into with you a little bit and it's partly because I'm writing a book called disappoint more people and it's about people pleasing and you wrote a question about a question I'm just going to read what you wrote um your therapist asked you did you grieve your leg your therapist asked Good question. I don't think so, I said. My determination had persisted from the time my mom told me at the dining table that my leg had to be amputated. Determination to be strong, not to be scared, to live up to my dad's frequent, frequent credo, coutures are tough. Determination not to be vulnerable, not to be a disappointment. And because as soon as I hear the word disappointment, I get a little bit uh, interested in curious about that. How have you moved past that need to not disappoint people in your life so that you can grieve? Mm. God, I I still am. (laughs) I haven't moved past it. I want to read disappoint more people. 
because it's tough, right? It's tough. It's tough to feel like we're letting people down in whatever way that is. And, you know, I think my family in trying to support me in having cancer and trying to be positive and trying to give me a faith in, in myself and in, and in recovery, even though so much of that is kind of out of our hands, they didn't mean to make me feel like I, I couldn't be sad about it. They didn't make mean to make me feel like I couldn't be afraid, but that's somehow how I interpret it, mm-hmm. you know, for all kinds of reasons, who I am and just other things and dynamics to that point. But so it was a lot for me to sort of learn to say, you know, I'm not okay, or I don't like this, and mm-hmm. and know that that might disappoint or kind of counteract the sense of I'm strong and I'm a survivor and, you know, coutures are tough because mm-hmm. I wanted to say, I don't feel tough. <laughs> this is hard. I don't like it. <laughs> um, right. And I was, right. I was afraid that the, by, by saying, but I'm not tough, like, then who am I? If this is our, our, our tagline and yes. I don't fit in there, then who am I? Where am I? Do I even belong in my family? You know? So right. um, I don't, I don't know. It's just, you know, years and years of trying to untangle it. And, and thanks yes. to conversations like that with my therapist, which even though it's such a simple question when he said, have you grieved your leg? And I was like, wow, no, I right. haven't. Because I was right. trying to be strong, because I was trying to be impressive, you know, and overcome. Yes. Mm-hmm. But you know, 20, 30 years later, I was realizing, oh, this is the not being able to grieve has been coming out in all these other ways. And then compounding, you know, my loss of my leg was when I was 13, but then my sons and other losses. And it just reached a point where I was like, oh, this is all really building up all of it. And um, when when you hit, uh, sorry, when you hit the phantom pain section of your book, and I know that you were playing at metaphor, but I love the style. We'll talk about the style later of you not coming right out and saying it. And I, it hit me so profoundly that you were exploring and remembering the phantom pain of the leg, your leg not being there. And then I remembered a part that came not too long after where you talked about the boys being a constant presence that you can feel them every day. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a profound, I instantly wanted to rename your book. It was the, those phantom pains that you can um, push past, know our present, savor when you want to. I mean, you have found a way to hold space for both the agony of the loss, but celebration of the presence. And I, you recognizing that you needed to be a sort of, you know, hero and strong and be a couture when you lost your leg, I didn't get the sense that you felt the need for that in grieving the boys in the same way. But that the phantomness is a metaphor I think is really powerful for people who've lost someone so close to them. Yeah. And what's interesting about, about that metaphor is that I've read a couple pieces over the years about the loss of a child where people say, it's like losing a limb, you lose part of yourself. And then I'm like, as someone who's lost a limb and lost two children, I don't know. They're no, really not, they're really not the same. Like, it's just a leg. It's fine. I have a fake leg. I'm fine. But losing a person, a, a person, you know, there's no replacement. There's no prosthetic person to, to, to fill who they are to you, to the world, who you were to oh, them. That you know? will and stay so, with me. That's going to stay with me the rest of my life, I have to tell you. That is so mm-hmm. profoundly, that is just more powerful than I can tell you, you mm-hmm. putting it that way. Thank you. 
and, it, it, and at the, like, the metaphor works to a point, of course, because mm-hmm. it is a sense of like, but they were here and I can still feel them. So where are they? And so I understand why people use that comparison, but then it also ends at a certain point. But, but it's in the book because it, it does work. And, and there mm-hmm. is a way of describing those things that makes sense and helps illustrate it. Yeah. So it's yeah. Kind of both. You use the word in the book trailer that losing your sons was a dismantling. And that was a powerful choice of words. I, I, I just, it's another, like, I, I feel like I have little snippets written from your book, little yeah. words or phrases that you chose, <laughs> but dismantling, I thought that is such a perfect word, I think, to use that. Like, it was just a good, good, um, I don't know, good word. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, how do you feel the boys every day? I mean, you taste, we taste that in the book and you're so economical with it in the mm-hmm. book. And I thought I could have spent a whole book on just the boys and mm-hmm. maybe all of your children because, because you're not just mom in the book. You're so many, many things to so many people in the book. And I think that your reader is going to be, your readers are going to be so diverse, but I know a lot of people are going to come to it with the wanting to know you as a mom, as a resilient coping mom. Mm-hmm. I mean, my sons are, that I, I know, especially now that I have a third child who is alive and well, I, I notice even more so how it feels the same in my heart towards my sons. Like before my daughter was here, I felt them in my heart every day. I think about them and I love them and I miss them. <laughs> that's, that's the, the part that comes next or for that, the part com- comes first, then I can think, oh, right, but I love them. And with my daughter, I'm like, oh, I, I, you know, I can sit here and I can think about her and oh, right, I love her. And it's the same feeling. Mm, it's the same feeling for them as I have for her, even though I know she's just like in the playground right now, like I'm, I will see her. <laughs> mm. And, um, and so it doesn't move into ache in the way that it, it does with my sons, but it's just there. My love for them is there. They, they're, they're my babies, you know, and there's, we have pictures of them on the wall and we say hi to the pictures and we talk about them with her. And I have some of my own rituals, you know, for remembering them and, and just sitting with my love for them. And that's, that's really it. Like how, how their presence is, is my, is my love for them. That's it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yes. Thank you. I think this would be a great time for you to read something from your book. Sure. Sure. So I had, I, I was kind of, because you asked that question about mm-hmm. you know, answering, do you have kids? And that was the part that I was planning to read. So I thought, I think it's going to fit nicely here. Let me just find, there we go. Okay. So this is from, I mean, this is from the prologue, which is, I think entirely about my children. And even though the book, like you said, it does go into these other losses. I wanted to share this piece at the beginning because of course it's the biggest and hardest loss and it kind of paints a picture of who I am now in the present um, before we go back. Um, So the prologue is called, These Are My Children, and this is an excerpt from that. You have two children? She asked. It was 2011 and we'd only just met. Our mutual friend, the connection between us, sat next to me, and I felt her discomfort immediately. I knew in that moment the woman asking had read my bio online, the bit about after a two-year hiatus to have her second child, the bit that gave an incomplete description of why I stopped performing for a while. My friend glanced nervously between us, and the woman was becoming awkward, unsure. The friend decided to answer for me. No, she drew it out, a firm line, a tone to change the subject, 
I understood she wanted to protect me, but I could answer for myself. Yes, I replied. I have two children. Sometimes I answered differently. Backstage at a music festival the following summer, a fellow performer was describing her children to me, the circus of getting them on the road with her, the adventures of camping on site. She paused to ask, like most people with children do, do you have kids? Her invitation to swap parenting anecdotes. No, I said. I didn't have children I'd had to wrangle into long road trips or whom I needed to shortly rustle up dinner for, and I thought that's what she was asking. But I was always a little hurt by the lie when I told it even when I used the lie to protect myself. I was also instantly distracted by it. I'd start to wonder where the conversation would have turned if I'd answered yes. I felt guilty at the denial. I'm not forgetting you, little one. I couldn't guess how many times I'd been asked by then if I had children or the similar related question, do you have other children? Each time I was asked, I twitched or winced, still unprepared for it. And each time I made a decision on how to answer, trying to gauge what the subsequent questions would be, how the person I was talking to might respond. I was usually making a quick judgment call on someone I barely knew, guessing what their spiritual leaning might be, their openness to sorrow, where they landed on the hug it out or suck it up spectrum, whether saying yes seemed like the right or wrong choice depended on my own beliefs, openness and access aligned or collided with theirs. In a support group for bereaved parents at Canuck Place Children's Hospital in Vancouver, the problem of how to answer these questions came up many times. The facilitator, who for 15 years had engaged in conversations with parents of dead or dying children, shared a story, as he often did, from a past member of this club no one wants to be in. When asked whether she had children, the woman in his story replied, that seems like it should be a straightforward question, but for me it's not. The person asking the question could then leave it at that or ask for clarification. The woman felt like she'd finally found an honest response in that it acknowledged the answer depended on perspective, including her own frequently shifting perspective, and as well challenged the assumption that the answer to that question should be a simple yes or no. Though no parent who has lost a child has ever thought that no is a truthful answer, yes can feel unnecessarily complicated. Another woman shared that she always answered yes, regardless of who asked or the context of the question. Should the inevitable questions follow how many and how old? She answered one child who would be five if they were still living. She didn't waver. Yes, I wasn't always as strong, but did I have children? Yes. How many? Two. How old were they? Emmett would be 13 and Ford would be 11 now. Were they both still alive? Writing this is annually out of date and even as I write it, I know I will want to return to this page and tell you again. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it steps so into my territory there. So I'm going to try to, to um, manage my own emotions. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a, a mantra that has run through my last decade and it's waking up and listening for the noise of my son in the house and saying, he's still here, he's still here, he's still here because I have to be reminded. And um, I thought that was beautiful. I thought it was eloquently written and I thought it was so beautiful that you took us into a scene that actually happened with other parents wrestling with whether it is to be strong or fair or loving in not knowing how to remember but language makes us language makes us self-conscious I think and mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why I'm bumbling around a little bit now even on the podcast of is this okay do you feel comfortable going into this area but language is your thing and I wondered 
if publishing the book felt different, more or less meaningful, closer to your heart, farther from your heart than the other material that is your art, you know, do you compare as a musician and a songwriter, can you compare a book and a song? Um, I'd love for you to step into that. What is with the book coming out this year and you dropping an EP, you're sitting right on top of this question, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the stories in the book are stories that I have told in my music um, before and for years. And, but it is different. I mean, telling, telling these stories through music, I mean, I feel very grateful that I've had <laughs> these various avenues to express this stuff. Because music, I mean, as we all know, it's so physical and it, it touches so many parts of ourselves. And so in making music, I got to have this way of talking about my heartache, sharing my story in a very expressive way because it's singing and it's physical and I'm playing an instrument. Um, and, there's, you know, people connect in music, with music in different ways, but also in a way that could be veiled because it's yes. only three or four minutes long and there's a chorus and we just, it rhymes. <laughs> there's sort of, you, you can kind of hide things or disguise things and tell things in a different way in lyrics, you know, sort of like in a poem, it's, it's maybe a bit more, um, uh, it's not as detailed. And okay. so even though for me, these stories have already been out in the world in a long way, the book is much more in depth and, right. you know, literal. <laughs> um, and so, but I was, I was drawn to write it because I feel like even though I've been telling these stories and songs for so long, I've been compelled to still figure out how I want to tell them. And so this was like, oh, I want to tell it this way. You know, we talk about what's our story, like how do we see ourselves? And I really wanted to, to test that out and to craft yes. it and to work on it and say, what is this story? How do I want to tell it? And I want to tell it like this, and then maybe not tell it anymore. Not to say I'd stop talking about it, but it doesn't necessarily need to be in my art anymore. Like I think I've reached a point where like, okay, this, this is it. The book is the thing I was <laughs> working up to. This is what right. I wanted. So yeah, I there's similarities. You promote it for another full year. Plus. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Focus and it may your attention be... on the closing of the back cover, right? <laughs> uh, absolutely. You know, you, you step into my favorite thing about memoir, which is structure. And I'm asked as a, as a book coach all the time, how to structure a memoir in a way that is different, unique, more intriguing. And I always say how organic it is. And you made this so organic for me. As I read along, I thought, is this essays? Are these uh, vignettes? Are they anecdotes? But it was, it was all of those things you so selectively dropped in pieces like flowers in a garland, like leaves, um, you know, on, on, as leaves fall from a tree. It was, uh, you didn't feel, it seemed, compelled to connect, to provide that filler text, to say what happened between the end of that chapter and the beginning of the next one. And sometimes you quite abruptly just took us to the next place because you assumed a smart reader who is really into the story is going to just keep coming along with you. And I'd love to hear you describe how you married yourself to the structure and really felt committed to it. And did you have input? Was that something that came out of your sort of songwriting expertise where a certain length felt right to you? And then how did you know you were done that what you wanted in was in? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad. I mean, your, your take on all that is exactly what I was going for. So that's a relief. You know, I started, like, this was my first book. I haven't written a book before. 
Uh, it's so many words. As you know, it's a big task to write a book. And I, I've done lots of writing. I mean, it's interesting. I used to think, oh, I'm a blogger and I'm a songwriter, but I'm not a writer. And then I was like, oh, wait, same thing. Yeah, okay. you are. <laughs> um, and I mean, it kind of, it, it happened in stages. I mean, when I decided that it would be a book kind of more broadly about loss like when I did step back and think back and think about my grief file like as you mentioned off the yeah. top I like to call it the sort of point form of like oh yeah that and then that and then that and when you look at that uh, as a list it's extraordinary and I thought huh okay <laughs> I could tell those stories and so I kind of built the structure based on that bullet list of like well then first there was the cancer and then there was the leg and then there was the um, you know thyroidectomy or whatever I just kind of thought of each chapter as, as a as a different loss and that's how I went into writing the first draft. And initially it was a bit more a collection of essays and stories and not as much of a thread through that you probably could have just picked it up, read one chapter and it might stand alone. Mm -hmm. And then in, in, in once I got through that kind of first, you know, vomit draft of just getting it out there, I decided I wanted it to be a bit more connected. I wanted it to start and finish. I wanted there to be some threads that wove through them. Um, so that there would be some kind of callbacks. And, and again, not that you wouldn't, you know, if you just jumped into the end, you might still kind of get what's going on. But I wanted to there be a sense of who I was before and after each of these losses. Um, and that came also in, in part with working my, with my editor, Barbara Poling, who was absolutely brilliant and wonderful. And she helped me with some of those threads in part because, of course, she came in with that outside ex perspective of saying, well, what, what happened here? <laughs> like, we don't know what happened here. It really and helps, kind of helped me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really helps. So really, she really helped me sew in some of those threads. But she also knew what I was trying to do as far as like, these are these moments in time. This is the list. But I wanted to fill in a little bit of gaps in between those things just so people did kind of know who I was before and after without but yeah 10 years go by or whatever in between different stories and also originally it wasn't quite in chronological order it was sort of all over the map and so when we shifted it into from kind of my youngest experiences to pretty much present day um that's also where we sort of saw more of an arc and a bit of those threads come in well it's very compelling and i don't know mm -hmm. another book like it and for close readers like sandy and i it was an absolute pleasure to go through a piece and then say look what she just did there so yes. we we totally celebrate it i would awesome. be i'd be a lunatic if i didn't talk about the cover and if this is an overly simplistic question i don't think anything about book covers is simple but the the presence of the key i'm holding it so i'll have to say it for people who haven't gone and gotten your copy but please do so there's the presence of a skeleton key which you can talk about or not if you don't want to give anything away but the floral imagery behind the graphic of the title obviously is evoking something about your beautiful leg. But is it the same fabric? Is it provocatively the same? I mean, we don't know. I haven't seen your leg up close, but can it's you talk to us about the fabric. cover? <laughs> yeah, talk to you about the cover. That's amazing. So, yes, it is amazing because it was actually a surprise. So we were working on this cover of, you know, kind of the big text and the, the full page of how to lose everything. And I love that look, that feel. And we were playing with just other floral designs. And then to help the designer know what to look for, I sent her an image of the pattern that's on my leg. And so my prosthetic leg, which we talked about, is it's covered in flowers, but it's not hand painted. It's actually a fabric that's laminated onto the fiberglass. So you can, with prosthetics, you can pick any fabric. It could be whatever print you want, which, and it's a very simple effect or very simple like technology, but it, you can transform how it looks. And so 
I found this linen upholstery fabric at Chins and Co. in Vancouver, loved it. And that's what's on my prosthesis. And so I had sent her a picture of the fabric to be like, this is what we're going for if you want to find something similar. And the designer actually ordered the fabric, photographed it outdoors. Apparently that was the best lighting <laughs> and then used it in the cutout of these letters. And so I love it because of course mm. the, the, the chapter shapeshifter where I talk about losing my leg and I talk about getting the flower leg and that turning point, you know, it also works as a symbol for the book. It's the way, like, how do we, how do we talk about things? How do I change what the questions are about my experience? And because the flower leg so transformed my experience with disability, it sort of speaks to how I'm transformed with all these losses and how I'm changing the conversations or choosing those conversations. And so it just worked really beautifully to have the flowers there. And flowers, of course, like are pretty. And I mean, there's so many metaphors and so much meaning in flowers. Um, and the it's key, I love book. the key. I love the mm -hmm. little key. I think we'll leave it for people to find out what it is. Wonderful. You know, I, I love um, covers where you don't get them until you reach a point in the book and you're like, oh, yeah. that's what that is. Like I was yeah, reading Washington too. Black and I'm like, why is there an octopus on the cover of this book? Yes. And then I get in there and I'm like, there's the octopus. <laughs> you know, like it was so ding, satisfying, ding, ding. right? <laughs> and so I, I, I loved that we were able to give that to readers of like, here's the key. It's which also has kind of this meaning in this, this, you know, sure it's a very does. specific experience, you know, mm -hmm. with an actual key, but um, it kind of also just frames some of the things that I learned and share in the book. That's oh, great. Fantastic. Well, we could keep talking, but I know you have um, probably other things you need to do, like get to a playground maybe and <laughs> <laughs> relieve somebody from um, playing. So what are you working on right now? We'll just wrap up with a few questions, but what are you working on right now? I mean, the immediate task is sharing this book and talking about this book um, and spending time with my daughter. And, uh, and then I work at a, I'm on radio here in Toronto at Element FM. And so I do that every day from home. I record my show. And, you know, I don't know yet what the next writing is going to be. My agent, of course, this is such an agent thing. She's like, this is the time to plan your next book. I was like, oh, God, my next book. I don't know what that's going to be. I did really, really love writing. I really, really loved the process of it. So I think there will be something, but I'm kind of waiting for something to feel like the right story. You know, and I think like a lot of us in these times, what I'm working on is just so, that, that, which we're on such short-term goals right now. I think a lot of us like mm -hmm. staying healthy, <laughs> yeah, keeping our absolutely. family healthy, making sure mm -hmm. we're, you know, can afford our lives and still have work. Like I think things are so immediate right now. So I'm kind of in that sure. space of like, get the book out there let's play with the three-year-old right. okay what's for dinner that's right and we're, we're <laughs> dropping right you'll be you'll be in bedlam busy when our uh, our podcast lands so this question yes. might seem a little irrelevant we always ask about not just what you're reading but do you have a favorite memoir or book do i have a favorite memoir you know oh i i don't have a favorite in part because there's so many that i still want to read and i feel like yes maybe my favorite is to come you know what? I mean, maybe you'll probably appreciate this in the work that you do, but I was told early on in working on this book, I went to a writer, the Emerging Writers Intensive at Banff, yeah. and Wayne Grady was our facilitator, yeah. and he talked about how um, when you're reading like creative nonfiction or fiction, you shouldn't be able to tell the difference. Like, it's a That's good right. story. You shouldn't know. Like, someone would have to tell you. And I remember being like, really? Like, is that true? And and then I read um, Boys of My Youth by, uh, is it Joanne Baird? Joanne Beard? Oh, That's right. Yes. Uh -huh. um, and when I read that, I was like, oh, 
that's what he's talking about. <laughs> this book does You can't it. tell with that, right? You can't tell. And it's, you know, it's just scene after scene. I think it's all in the present tense. And so for me, that's, that was a memoir that was kind of changed my thinking about writing memoir because she does it so wonderfully. It's just, yes, it, it, it changed how I thought about what I could write. I don't have to be adding commentary or perspective and reflecting it. And that's in my book a bit too, but yes. it really helped me think about being present and being in scenes. And I love her book for that. Mm. Um, another favorite is The Dead Ladies Project by Jessica Crispin. Is that, I, I don't know that one. It's wonderful because it's like, actually, someone described it to me before I bought it. This made me want to read it as an eat, pray, love, but realistic. <laughs> no, no shade to eat, pray, love, but she sort of she starts off depressed, but she also ends depressed. So it's like there's no kind of big oh, so it's real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I love it because it's the sort of travel log and memoir yeah. and like a reading list because she's always reading and talking about books. So it's kind of a book that like makes you want to read ten more books, which is always. Oh, I exciting. love that That's recommendation. Great. Thank so those you. are a couple of my favorites. Love those it. Great. Doing my uh, order soon. Uh, right. Yes. Books, so. <laughs> There's always so much to read. Absolutely. <laughs> so how can people connect with you? How can people find you? Well, KristaCouture.com will lead to all the other things. I mean, my music's on Spotify and Apple Music and Bandcamp, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter and all of those places. So people can find me in various places, but ChrisCouture.com will lead to them if you need. And when, uh, when are you on the radio? You said you're daily. What time can people find your show if they're yeah. listening to your show? Sure. If you're in Toronto or even streaming online, it's um, yeah. from noon to three. And I mean, it's, it's a music station. It's a really great mix. And I just like talking about pop culture and event. Like, it's kind of nice because I think people expect me to be talking about like loss and sadness and grief. And I do that, obviously. But then on my show, I'm just like, you know, like talking about celebrities uh, okay so we should be asking you who are you listening to right now who that might you? be a good question for us whose story are you telling <laughs> there's always always more to talk about in that world yeah we, we thank you we thank you so much for this it's been yes. an absolute pleasure thank, thank you. you yeah thank you so much